So Mark, here is my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Um, I think it's, uh, you're asking someone that can find that a particularly complicated question to answer. Possibly I know too much about the nature of self to be able to give a simple and straightforward answer, but I think um, it's about, it really is involved, it involves um, qualities of integrity and authenticity. And these are not necessarily something that is an individual concern. We, we have a self, a sense of self, and we create that in relationship to others. And that sense of self changes depending on our relationships and our sort of social environment and what we're doing. Perhaps possibly the, 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 the closeness of friendship and, uh, and, and uh, alliance we might have with another. We kind of extend our sense of self to include others that are part of the same team. We're on the same side, if you like. But in an individual context, when we're competing with others, trying to win, uh, you know, or, 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 or fear loss in in a, in a relationship we, where we don't where we don't have some kind of uh, level of trust, we create a sense of separate self that has to defend its own uh, situation and possibly try and gain others, and that's a that's an inefficient way of of going about maintaining a sense of self other than in uh, a specific context where we really need to kind of defend our interests, if you like, in, 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 under conditions of threat. So I think you raised some really important points there. Let's try and flesh some of that out. Coming back then to self, I guess in a way we could say there's this kind of performance of the self that we perform in front of others as a way to either to protect our self-interest or possibly to gain favor. And that's one thing, but that wouldn't be considered um, authentic. So I guess the question is, is there some value in taking time to develop our authentic self? And I guess the next question to that is, how would we even do that? Considering that, I think a lot of people spend most of their time in what Irvin Goffman would talk about as the front stage self. So in that sense, their front stage self is always putting on this performance in order to try to be accepted. But of course, there's also their backstage self that nobody gets to see. I think part of the problem is that I've noticed that a lot of people is that they don't really know who they are. And that's part of the reasons what is causing them their suffering. So I think at least part of the answer is beginning to create a sense of self that identifies with something that is greater than the individual, a sense of purpose. And a sense of purpose has always got to be in the context of what that offers in terms of useful service to others, others that at least we have some kind of meaningful connection with and we can even extend that sense of identity to include um, you know ethical principles of action and then those ethical principles are almost universal 
They don't necessarily mean that we don't necessarily go into a condition where we're competing or in conflict with another, but we have very clear guidelines as to when that's appropriate and when that is useful. And outside of that, the ethical principles will guide us in a way that means that we feel authentic and we satisfy a, 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 an internal sense of integrity that is really dictated by or at least aligned to those higher principles of, of, of ethical behavior. That's a really important point that you made about the ethical principles. So my question to you is, what would those be? Do you have any key insights on what those might be? For example, what would be the top five that people should focus on? Because I think, again, a lot of times people are doing things out of self-interest. One of the things that I often say to my students is, of course, you want to be yourself. It's fine to be self-reliant, but not at the cost of other people's health and wellness and happiness. So if I'm doing whatever I want to do because I want to be my own entity, I want to be driving my life in the direction that I have set forth, but it shouldn't come at the cost of other people. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, very much so. Um, I don't know if you've come across a relatively new and relatively unknown set of theoretical principles that's called social baseline theory. It's based, uh, like, unlike many social theories, in sort of energetics that are dictated by ecosystems, i.e. all species, all organisms, maximize the efficiency over time and evolution of the use of energy in an ecosystem. And when individuals in a social group come together, there's advantage, there are advantage, advantages and there are costs. But overall, social animals are successful at being at creating adva advantages in coming together. For example, a group of gazelles. There's always one gazelle that's, that's got its head up looking for a predator, while all the other gazelles can get on and feed and feel at ease. And the key really here is what is it that makes you feel at ease? Now, that's what underpins our sense of authenticity because we're returning to that sense of ease. And as a human being, our sense of ease is more dependent on our social connections than, or, than probably any other species, because we, are the, we have the most, our brains are evolved to, be, to maintain close, loyal, um, uh, emotionally connected, significant relationships that sustain us our whole lives. You know, we, we, we have we spent two you know as bipedal bipedal hominids we spent somewhere between four and eight million years walking around without teeth without claws but we had others around us that we could rely on and care for us and it's and it's those types of connections that really make us feel when we feel that connected we feel at ease and we're all, and that's the social baseline that's the the state of ease that we're always looking to maintain. And if we are 
trying to pull a fast one on people around us. We're never, we're buying into a habit which is always saying, I've got to look out for my back. And that makes us, it, it's, a net, it's a feedback that is really destructive to our emotional integrity. It was really beautiful what you described. And I guess one of the biggest lies that we have been sold, at least in the modern era, is this idea of survival of the fittest. Yeah. And so people take that to the extreme. And as you are suggesting, it becomes all about them. But in my experience, one of the ways to really find out who you are is by putting yourself in a place where you become of service to other people without wanting or needing anything else in return. And when you do that, you start to realize your true capacity or your true inner power. I agree with you 100%. So I guess this is a good segue into talking about this concept of mindfulness, which is all the rage at the moment. I'd like to get your take on this. I'm not sure if you know that, but my PhD, my doctorate was in mindfulness, and I specifically focused on mindful leadership from an embodied perspective. So it's always great to be able to talk to other practitioners. I guess one of my major kind of problems or issues that I have with mindfulness as it is presently being presented is that it's a catchphrase for everything. I feel like there's been a disconnection from its spiritual roots, but this conversation is not about me, it's about you. And so my question to you is, why do we even need mindfulness in a contemporary society? Um, I think if you go back to our, I always like to go back to you know, what was it like being a human being before modern times? And I, I don't mean the last two, three hundred years. What I mean is going back before we started to organize ourselves in larger groups, i.e. the hunter-gatherer. Now that's, and we have changed very little since those times. It, 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 may, be, it may be going back, I mean, farming really took off 10,000 years ago, created larger settlements, and we changed the whole structure of society. And that's a really important turning point. But we started to organize ourselves into larger groups, maybe 50, 60, 70,000 years ago to protect territory. And we, and we started to build new ways of organizing larger groups that needed to defend their territory. Uh, it, we, we occupied more fertile ground, population was growing, etc. you know, coastal areas that we could... That, that would support a, a higher density of population. And to do that, we had to start creating imaginary symbols that held that group together. The, the oldest symbol, the oldest imaginary sort of deific object is 40,000 years old. It's a lion man of, of, uh, found in a cave in Germany in, uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And since then, we've created imaginary objects that give us a, a larger group identity that go beyond the natural social networks that we would establish through intimate relationships in family and extended family and, and, and closely connected individuals in small groups of hunter-gatherers. And that ability to organize ourselves into larger groups to be more efficient at, at, at producing 
food to support larger and larger populations with with farming and the development of technology meant that we started to structure society. We started to objectify the natural world. We started to objectify everything around us and create definitions of this is mine, this is yours, this is ours, this is theirs. Um, and building slowly into this kind of social stratification that would create sense of unfairness and in the hunter-gatherer everything is shared all the time anyone that tries to pull a fast one is going to get pulled down a notch and if they don't if they if they carry on trying to kind of use their power to you know dominate others or create some sense of authority people eventually will reject them whereas we kind of built culture out of our out of out of our need to organize larger larger groups with hierarchies where we started to lose our sense of independent autonomy and give that to the leader or the priest or the landowner or the land or the lord or the powerful individual and do what we were told by those people and and that pattern has become more and more and more established to the point at which we are slaves to routines where we don't bring our authentic, we, we, bringing our authentic self can actually be a serious hindrance because it means that you speak your mind and people don't want to know that because it threatens the order of the organization. So increasingly we've got chronic threats that i've got to get this i've got to get uh you know i'm looking to to improve myself because i'm responsible for achieving my goals uh, i'm responsible for earning a living i'm responsible for for paying the mortgage i i want to have a bigger car so i want to look more powerful in society etc etc and that's created chronic sort of concerns about my own self-worth whereas historically we would have felt this well, it, it, as hunter-gatherers would have felt this most of the time this sense of camaraderie and connection and ease with others and threat would be very unusual it could be a war party from a neighboring from, from a from a from a warlike tribe it could be it could be a, a, a large predator a surprise attack you know that, that, that was a shock and a traumatic event, but we'd spend a lot of time socializing to work out what we, you know, to build our, rebuild our bonds and work out what we did about this threat. Whereas now we're individuals and we have this sense of chronic threat that tells us we've got to achieve and we've got to do better and we've got to be our best self. You know? And it just ends up telling us that we're, that we're, you know, ends up creating a sense of stress and then out of that, we've created different approaches to dealing with psychological problems. And the, the most recent and possibly the most interesting that we've come up with, with yet is applying this uh, practice that originally comes from, uh, well, actually, it's, it's a, a development from a modern take in colonial Burma on uh, Buddhist meditation. And interestingly, that was actually you know, a little bit of a side, side. That was actually created for political purposes. It wasn't, you know, it was a re, 
a, a reimagining, a reinvention of an ancient practice. It wasn't, there wasn't a, 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 a lineage of that practice that led into the creation of this practice that became uh, about present moment awareness. And that became something that had helped people to regulate their over-concerned, worrying thoughts about being good enough or need, you know, worrying about achieving a goal or those kind of chronic threats. So in, a sh in short, it's become necessary because society has created conditions which have resulted in increasing levels of mental health problems due to stress and, and I'd say that a kind of accumulation of failure to satisfy our developmental needs in terms of attachment and emotional connection close connection with intimate groups that we, we would be part of. Mm. So it's a breakdown of our social needs in modern society that's led to a need. Well, what do we do? You know, this has come along and helped us to cope with all of that. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection between the political upheaval in Burma and how that connects to mindfulness? Because I think that's a, an interesting thing. And a lot of people listening to this might have never heard of that before. Well, it was obviously, you know, a traditional society, a traditional Buddhist society with a, a royal court. And like all, uh, you know, uh, traditions, all traditional cultures, the, 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 the religious tradition is closely allied to the tradition of power. And that's um, so, so, you know, Buddhism is no different to any other religious system in that respect. And under colonial times, clearly, uh, the institutions of the state, the institutions of the royal court, and the institutions of the uh, uh, Buddhist institutions of the monastics were, were crumbling. The whole identity of, of um, you know, Burmese sense of self, Burmese identity was, was under threat. And uh, particularly innovative and brilliant monk uh, leader monk came up with the idea of of creating a shortcut method uh, that that became mindfulness that to to teach the lay population to become practitioners without going through many years of rigorous training philosophical training and and ethical training and and potentially long periods of meditation practice which incidentally was, was very rare at that time. You know, at that time, it was, it, it, it was, it was very rare across the whole of Southeast Asia, uh, meditation itself. And it was reinvented in this period. And that somehow became the kind of the, the, the main signifier from a contemporary, contemporary perspective of what, med of what of Buddhism is. It's meditation. Well, that, that, historically, that was never the case. And even today, most Buddhists, uh, most traditional Buddhists in Buddhist cultures don't meditate. Um, so, so it was it was an intention to make something simple that could give that could create lay teachers that could maintain or preserve or sustain the Burmese Buddhist national identity. The national identity and Buddhism were inseparable. You know, it's it, it and it was that quick quick uh, method that then became, they also, at a time during, you know, under colonial rule, 
the, the Buddhist culture was very keen to present itself as rational in the face of Westerners, in the face of the British colonies. In fact, it, it, they would also, you know, question the, 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 the British and say, well, you've got this sort of imaginary God thing, but ours is totally rational <laughs> to try and give them legitimacy in this modern, emerging modern state under uh, British colonial rule. So, so that slowly became kind of translated into a psychological self-observation system. And that became, that appealed to Westerners, you know, traveling in the, in the 60s, looking for meaning, hippies going throughout India and stuff. And, 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 and one development of that became particularly attractive and kind of created a modern form of Western Buddhism that looked at this kind of, this approach to understanding the mind as a sort of psychological process to help people deal with their really meaninglessness of, 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 of experience in a lot of Western life. And that was very easily translated into a psychological therapy. It was only half an inch away. If we look at how mindfulness is being portrayed currently in the West, what is your feeling about how it has been disconnected from its spiritual roots? You know, in that sense, it seems that mindfulness is just this kind of cognitive training process to get more clear, to be more present. And a lot of people will practice, for example, meditation because they see it as a way for them to learn to manage their stress more effectively. And that is as far as it goes. But the spiritual aspect has been completely removed. Do you think that there's something lost by doing that? Or do you think that there's still some value in just looking at mindfulness in a secular way, in absence of its spiritual tradition? There are definitely, uh, that's definitely a yes and definitely a no. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Um, well, we can clearly say that applying uh, mindfulness to reduce the suffering of mental health uh, problems in society is not a bad thing. There is a flip side to that, though, because are you just teaching people to cope with unsustainable conditions that are causing the problem in the first place. And this, this, goes, this, is, this goes all across the board from, from therapy to your 10-minute apps. Is it just about helping people to carry on climbing up the greasy pole? So the, the positive argument would be that, well, when people are able to deal with their mental health problems better or cope better with stress, they can actually express qualities of being a natural human being better, be better, have better relationships, support, have, you know, build better connections, be, achieve, you know, do things in life that are positive. Um, so building better relationships and being more at ease in yourself can't be a bad thing. I think um, and, 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 and then, then there's perhaps a question of what do you mean by spiritual anyway? Now, what I mean by spiritual is nothing more than that innate humanness that even therapeutic mindfulness or 10 minute app mindfulness is beginning to help people access that innate humanness. 
um, it's not just about, a, how shall I put it, a humanistic, atheistic view of the world. It's much more than that. That's a very limited view of it. Uh, I hesitate to talk about spirituality because I think it's simply all of those things that we talk about that are spiritual are just intrinsic to the nature of reality. And we just separate them off. And when we separate off, there's a danger in doing that. But, but realistically, we access this when we understand that characteristics of natural characteristics of human intimacy, care, attachment, sacrifice, self-sacrifice for the greater good of, of, the, of our loved ones and those we identify with and even ethical principles that go beyond that that's spirituality from, to, from my, my point of view. And, if, and, 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 and even very short periods of mindfulness practice that help people to calm down, help them to connect with their humanity are going to benefit in some small way. So I think we need to shift, you know, my particular interest in mindfulness is, is bringing back those a, a, a connection between those ethical principles and the mindfulness practice explicitly. And with that is an understanding of how we create a construct, this sense of self in different contexts and realize that the self we cling on to is a transient thing. And we've got to use this transient thing of self that we identify with intelligently rather than be its slave. Um, in a nutshell, that, looking at spiritual traditions, that's what they're teaching. And I think we can translate this into modern, into a contemporary context in understanding ourselves in relationship to others, what is, and, and, and using the mindfulness practice to see those patterns to reconnect with that authentic sense of self that you're talking about, which is really the deepest feelings of humanness, of connection and service. I'm really glad that you brought up and talked about the ethical component. The reason I used the word spiritual before when I asked you the question was because I think that's how most people perceive it. That's their understanding. And when you talk about mindfulness and its deeper connection for most people, the way that they view that is their thoughts immediately go to Buddhism. And of course, then naturally the extension of that is religion. But one of the things that I think is really important, and this is likely what you're talking about, is if we're looking at it from a point of view of the Buddhist perspective, if, for example, the Eightfold Path, mindfulness is only one spoke of the wheel. I guess what I'm saying is that my perception of mindfulness and the way that it's being portrayed is that it is in of itself everything and it's the only component that you need to be aware of. This of course then speaks to what you were saying that that becomes in absence to the ethical component of mindfulness practice. For example, right speech, right action and so on. This is where I think a lot is being lost in the sense of just a purely secular perspective on mindfulness. Of course, mindfulness in of itself has benefits, 
but I don't believe it does so to the degree that a lot of people are presenting it. I feel that when we look at the perspective of just mindfulness in absence of everything else that I described, I cannot see how it elicits these beneficial aspects that many people are pointing to. I think they overstate the actual benefits. Again, much of those benefits that are often prescribed to mindfulness are going to come out of an ethical understanding. And then again, coming back to that is one of the reasons why mindfulness in the Eightfold Path, as the Buddha described it, is only one spoke of the wheel. I'm not sure if that's what you're seeing. I mean, is my perspective correct? Is, is what I am seeing what you are seeing as well? Broadly speaking, very much so. Very much so. Uh, I, I think taking a step backwards, um, and hopefully it's not too kind of far backwards um, and too abstract, but, but that's where I'd like to start because I, I mean, I, 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 that's, that's my that's kind of the ground that I feel quite comfortable on and, and trying to be really straightforward and practical and making sense is, is, is really hard work. <laughs> but um, um, nothing takes place outside of a context. And to see mindfulness as something that exists independently of context is the problem here. Now, and that's part of the emerging ideas or ideas that have emerged increasingly in this story, human story of property and hierarchy that became something that, you know, in the it, it, three, four, 300 years, three, 400 years ago, the Western world became more, you know, with, with the likes of, 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 of Newtonian laws understanding things as having some kind of separate existence that acts upon another, you know, um, the conservation of, you know, thermodynamics, looking at principles of objects acting on others. And we then think that everything is a world of objects that we can define and measure and then measure the way in which they cause effects on other things. And the whole of, uh, experimental science is built on that idea where we think that if we switch on, turn the switch on, the light will come on. And we think that the light switch is the cause of the light coming on, whereas it's much more complicated than that. The capacity, we then look at the way in which we understand our minds and we try and think of all of these different bits. We try and think of the brain as a machine and then we develop new cultural ideas with new technologies and we think of the brain as a computer. And these, they have some valid validity as analogies, but you know, the brain is a living thing. Information is inseparable from the physiology and the physiology of the brain is inseparable from the body and the body is inseparable from the environment and the social connections. In short, coming back to mindfulness, mindfulness arises not because mindfulness is practiced or it's an intrinsic quality of the human mind it arises out of our social experience as an and our social experience must be to be 
at ease something that is socially connected and have understandings of kindness and service to create the conditions in which we can be aware of what we're doing in the first place. So, you know, our social connections, our, our ethical principles are co-arising with mindfulness. We can't just go, oh, we're going to get mindfulness and this is going to make us do everything we want to do. It doesn't work like that. It, the reason why I'd say that there is also some truth in the idea that mindfulness has these benefits is that it's landing in a particular culture at a particular time with a particular set of assumptions about the nature of civil society with a particular stress-related problems. So it's not landing in a vacuum at all, but it isn't the cause of the benefits. It's bringing mindfulness into contemporary culture that by and large is, is, is subject to incredibly strong sets of notions of what are of ethical behavior, you know, everybody, you know, people aren't trying to cheat all the time. People have a sense of right and wrong and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And that it's good to be kind to your neighbors, etc. It's built into that. And we should be, I think, really making, really stressing the point that it's not a foundational principle or foundational characteristic. It's, it co-arises with our understanding of our own hearts and how we are connected with others emotionally and need others around us and we need to also support that by by uh, uh, extending that sense of identity into a broader understanding of ethical principles i think that's very valuable so in a sense what it comes down to is this idea of intention yeah my intention needs to be moving in the direction, as you're suggesting, where on the one hand, of course, it's about living a life of ease, but at the same time, understanding how my life actions impact everybody else around me. And if I'm coming to it from an ethical standpoint, then I don't want to see anybody else lose and I don't want to see anyone else getting hurt. I want to see their lives improve because by doing so, my life will improve. I think what I'm also getting to is that oftentimes I'm having conversations within the mindfulness community that many people don't want to have. There tends to be this Pollyanna kind of thinking where mindfulness is ultimately about becoming happy. But not understanding that, for example, if you are practicing mindfulness in the way that we are describing it with this ethical backbone, you're going to go into that practice and you may not come out of the practice feeling any better. You may feel worse initially because you are looking inside and you're becoming more self-aware. Added to that is that Again, just reaching back to what we've been talking about is that if we're just looking at mindfulness purely as an experience that exists outside of an ethical framework, then I can relate that to 
experiences that I've had where in the past I've been able to work with special force military operators. And, you know, when we think about the definition of mindfulness, just the pure kind of simple definition of being present without judgment, a sniper who is setting up his shot in that moment, he is in that exact space. He is completely present without judgment. He is exactly in a mindful place. In that respect, there is no difference then to what he is trying to achieve and what I would want to achieve if I'm purely looking at this very restricted definition of mindfulness as being present without judgment, but not bringing in the ethical component. But that's not what mindfulness is and what it should be about. And this is really where my issue comes in, is that what is being presented is not being oftentimes connected to a deeper ethical presence. It's just a mental practice. And so, yes, of course, it may bring you more to the present moment for now, but that doesn't necessarily in of itself change anything that you seek to change. So you might see some benefits initially, but I don't think you're going to see the long-term benefits where you're actually able to truly overcome those inner obstacles that you find within yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think what, if we're talking about this, I mean, I, 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 I've, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the definition of present moment, non-judgment, mental awareness, because I think it leads to all sorts of um, unhelpful conclusions. It's true that mindfulness practice, and that focuses largely on medita meditation as a mind training, mindfulness meditation, or paying attention, it's very simple attentional routines, which are about paying attention to the posture, paying attention to changes in sensations in the body and the breath and notice and, 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 and maintaining awareness of the body and noticing, becoming aware of feelings that may arise and thoughts that may arise rather than following those thoughts. What you're actually doing there is merely learning to disengage part of the mind that evaluates what's going on during that piece of attentional mm. training. That's all it is because we've overdone it with the evaluation mechanism and judging ourselves and, and our environments because of the context of the society that we've, 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 you know, has become so prevalent. So it's, but that capacity then gives you the, 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 the ability to start to notice what feels right and what feels right then gives you in post meditation the capacity to 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 develop an intention to cultivate what feels right and that cultivation of what feels right you can then compare or to 
to look, you know, compare with, that becomes the foundations of an auto autonomous sense of ethics, which is what we mean by authenticity, mm. or very much to do with an authentic sense of authenticity. So it's part of a linked process of gaining understanding and insight and sensitivity to this amazing human experience, body and process into how it works better so that we can be more skillful and decide to choose routines of feeling and thinking and acting that change our habit from the one that caused us to be stressful in the first place. I think what you said there, Mark, is really important. That distinction that you made is crucial. I guess what I'm getting at even further is that I agree with you on the definition that I gave is not helpful, but we could make the argument that that is how most people would define it because that is at least the way that it's yeah. been defined in the contemporary culture that we find ourselves yeah. presently. Is it not then that the secular mindfulness is being done in such a way that it would be easily accepted, for example, in organizations, because then you don't have to have a concern with yourself with the ethical ramifications of what you're doing? Because one of the things I have found that's been very difficult for me coming out of my research and exploring mindful leadership is that I have a real problem now going into organizations and working with people within mindfulness because I feel what I'm really doing is just actually perpetuating the problems even further. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, an organization is there to make profit. That is the bottom line. And I kept getting the sense that all I was doing was not really helping the people in front of me, but rather enabling that organization to mine them and to use them even more to squeeze out just that one more cent out of them. And I had such a huge ethical problem with that. And that's one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that I no longer go into organizations and I no longer teach mindfulness. What I've done is I've gone back to my own personal practice and done it on a one-to-one -one basis with students who want to come in and learn from me. Because in that way, I feel like ethically, I'm improving people's lives for the better and not, as I noted, going into an organization where they put out this kind of perception that, yes, oh, we want our employees to go through this mindfulness practice because we want their wellness to be improved. But like I said, I keep getting the sense that all I'm actually doing is adding more to the bottom line, adding more to the profit. And I have a real problem with that. Um, I, I'm very sympathetic to your, your, your feelings about it. Um, I think, you know, which we briefly touched on, you know, there may be haphazard positive impacts that people become more in touch with them, their authentic selves and start to behave in more uh, intelligent and uh, socially pro-social ways. But it's a very haphazard thing. And, um, and, 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 and it's for the very same reasons that you are describing. And, and, uh, and the, the, in my analysis, 
the has haphazard impact of 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 applying mindfulness in an organization that i that i've moved to finding a way of making uh mindfulness and for, for that matter resilience anything that you you teach individuals to be explicitly part of an organizational process of change to become more sustainable um and to become more sustainable it must be because it, it people like staying there and they start to build uh authentic um approaches to engaging in work that necessarily are going to be become follow you know actually actually follow the values that are stated rather than those values being merely just some kind of branding exercise. Yeah, I think going forward, and I definitely see that, I think there is going to be a massive change. I think people are going to insist that the places that they go to work are not only places that improve their own personal wellness, but are improving the wellness of the planet. And so I'm open to yeah. working with those groups and those organizations. Unfortunately, my, my initial kind of foray into this landed up in companies, I'm not going to mention their names, very well-known companies, the, the top of the top, where I don't see that, right? I don't see that. I see that it's really, they, they realize that their workforce is stressed out, hence let's lower their stress so that we can ultimately make them more profitable, but we'll kind of lie to them and tell them, are we really doing it because we care about you and you want, you want to improve your mental health, right? But I do think that that's going to change. We can call it the wisdom the wisdom age or the wisdom economy and where we're driving to now. And I think going forward, as we become more aware of the destruction that we are creating to the, the planet, especially as the younger generation come up, they don't want to work for companies that are purposely creating the problem. You know, so that, that's a good thing. Yep. But I think that's where, if we are going to bring mindfulness into those spaces, you cannot do it, as you said, without this kind of sustainable attitude where Everything has to be connected. And if you like it or not, there has to be an ethical framework there. Absolutely. And I think times are changing and they're changing fast. Um, it's, 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 you know, it, it, it's, um, and these kind of changes only take place when there's a lot of things making people worry about how things are going. You know, you, you, people are, are, are not, Let's put it this way: it is it's some kind of um, emotional distress that results in change, and that level of of emotional of fear and worry and concern about everything has got to a level that is 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 not just high, but 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 goes across society and across the world at the moment. So. There's, it's creating the con a container where I think um, the, a, sh a huge shift is taking place, and I'm, I'm let me let me put it this way, quietly hopeful that we can we can save our skins and create a better, a more a more just and sustainable world. So as we start coming to the end, Mark, maybe you want to just talk about what you are briefly currently involved in. How are you presenting what you do? And what would you say is making your approach different within the space that we have been discussing? Well, I've briefly mentioned that I only talk about 
applying mindfulness in the context of organizational change towards sustainability. And that's, that's sustainability in terms of employee retention, engagement, um, and authenticity, qualities of authenticity and moving towards, you know, and that's all got to be within um, some kind of sense of what is the best thing to do. It's got to have, have some kind of ethical framing under, underpinning it. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of someone that a proponent of something called that I call social mindfulness. And that is really combining the self-awareness and insight that mindfulness meditation practice, which is just this simple attentional training process, brings to our capacity to build intention to act in different ways. But building that in a context where we learn communication techniques that help us understand each other. So then we are applying the internal benefits of mindfulness in terms of self-awareness and insight into what makes us tick in relationship to others. And it's in relationship to others that the deepest, most profound feelings that give us a sense of ease become much more evident. It creates a sense of extended sense of self that means that we can collaborate more effectively align our intentions and actions and, 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 and skills to the service of the group more, authentic, or more, more, and more authentically and sustainably. So it's mindfulness of relatedness in the context of a working group that can become a critical mass that changes culture to become more human uh, or satisfy our deepest human needs in a sustainable way, in a nutshell. That's fantastic. That's important work that's needed. So final words of wisdom, Mark, what would you want to leave the listener with? Um, I'm, I've, not, I've hesitated to talk anything about, about uh, Buddhism, but there's my favorite teaching of the Buddha. He says uh, to a group of uh, a tribe that he's visiting, they said, Who should, whose teaching should we listen to? It's, uh, this tribe's called the Kalama tribe. And um, he says to them, don't listen to me or anyone because they have authority, because they have status, because they have high reputation. Don't listen to scripture. Don't listen to anything, any teaching that you do not understand and cannot, cannot use and have good benefit. Yes, do listen to the wise elders, but test everything and see, does this work? Trust your own mind, trust your own heart. The more we can do that, the more we will come up with solutions, authentic solutions where we can begin to understand each other better, understand ourselves better and work together for the collective benefit better.